and for the rest of us. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. Second book of the Bible, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, and we've been journeying through the Old Testament for really most of this year, and keep going through looking at these key stories of God's, God's working through the people of Israel. God is in the, the middle right now of rescuing Israel out of slavery. And before we kind of dive into the text, I wanted just to kind of start off by telling a little bit of a story here. Yesterday, my family and I, we had a, a day together. We drove up to Santa Cruz to escape the fog here in PG and get some nice sunshine. And as we we're driving up to Santa Cruz, we're trying to figure out, okay, what can we play for the kids? It's a longer car ride for them. And one of the favorite songs or the favorite, you know, soundtracks that, you know, my kids love to listen to is the Frozen soundtrack. And there's a song in particular that Kason, our four-year-old, he loves a ton. It's that song in the very beginning of that first Frozen movie. You can remember it where it, it sings like this. I'm actually not going to sing it, but I'll read it to you because that would be bad. <laughs> but if you ask Kason after service, you go up to him, he, would, he will gladly sing in my place. But he loves this line where it says, cut through the heart, cold and clear. Strike for love and strike for fear. There's beauty and there's danger here. Split the ice apart. Beware the frozen heart. And this morning, we're going to be talking about not necessarily a frozen heart, but a similar concept, a hard heart. And one of the things that we're going to be looking at this morning is this story where God is confronting Pharaoh through Moses and unleashes these ten plagues upon Egypt and the Pharaoh. And through the midst of this narrative, we're going to read this line over and over again about Pharaoh's hard heart. It's a kind of a doozy of a story. There's a lot of ins and outs. There's a lot of kind of complicated parts in it. But we're going to tackle it together this morning. But the question becomes then, what do we mean by the heart? If you kind of grew up in church or kind of have some sort of Christian background, the language of heart often comes up quite a bit. What are we actually talking about, though? Well, the language of, of the heart, biblically speaking, is kind of talking about sort of the control center of the human person, if you will. Everything sort of flows from the heart, biblically speaking. Mind, thought, emotions, actions. Jesus says in the New Testament, it's from the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The book of Proverbs talks about guarding our hearts because from it flow the springs of life. Right? So biblically speaking, the heart is kind of this core central kind of piece of the person, if you will, where, where everything flows from it. Minds, thoughts, actions, everything. Now with the hard heart, that's exactly what we don't want to have, as, especially as followers of Jesus. But what specifically are we talking about with a hard heart? I like this definition from a, a theologian. He writes this. A hard heart connotates the willful suppression of the capacity for reflection, for self-examination, for unbiased judgments about good and evil. In short, the hardening of the heart becomes synonymous with the numbing of the soul, a condition of moral atrophy. Now as we get into our story this morning, this is Pharaoh. Pharaoh has a hard heart. And up until this point, God has come alongside Moses, called Moses from the burning bush and says, Moses, you are going to be the one to lead my people, confront the Pharaoh out of slavery. But as Moses now begins to interact with Pharaoh, this language of Pharaoh's hard heart comes up again and again. So with all that in the back of our heads, let's take a look at Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 1. The text reads this. And the Lord said to Moses, 
See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. So verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Now, pause right there. I don't know about you, but the first time I read that little paragraph, the first question I had was, why is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Like, doesn't that seem counterproductive, right? If you're trying, like, imagine being Moses, right, at this point. And you're Moses, you're a little bit kind of fearful and timid. You kind of had this, you know, interaction with God at the burning bush where you've kind of been objecting to God, you know, using you to lead the people. You're Moses, and you hear that God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Aren't, if, you're, aren't you, if you're Moses, God, you're making my job a lot harder at this point, right? Like, wouldn't it be easier if you kind of, like, softened Pharaoh's heart a little bit and kind of made him say, you know what? oh, yeah, I can see why what we're doing is wrong and we shouldn't be doing this. And Pharaoh's a little more willing then to allow the people of Israel out of slavery. But no, no, the text reads, the Lord, or I will, the, speaking of the Lord, the Lord will, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And this is what we're going to explore a little bit. What exactly does the, this passage mean? And as the story continues, what are we actually talking about here? Because as this story continues here in chapter 7, Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh, they confront Pharaoh, and to, in order to show and demonstrate that God is on their side and that, that, that God is the all-powerful God, the first thing that happens is that Moses and Aaron throw their staffs down in front of Pharaoh and they, be, they turn into snakes. It's kind of interesting because what happens, at least initially, is that Pharaoh's magicians and servants, they can do that exact same trick, if you will. Their staffs go to the ground and they become snakes as well. This is all in the beginning of chapter 7. Well, then what happens is that Moses and Aaron's snakes eat the other snakes. It's like there's all these snakes eating snakes kind of a scene, like snakes on the plane, right? That really bad movie from a few years ago. And so you have this moment where, where Moses' snakes are more powerful. Moses' staff is more powerful than Pharaoh and the magician's staff. But then we read this ominous line in verse 13. The text says this, yet Pharaoh's heart was hard. Now, if you look at the Hebrew grammar here, and some of you are like, I don't want to look, look at Hebrew grammar right now. Totally fine. But if you were to look at the Hebrew grammar, it's actually ambiguous as to who is doing the hardening in this verse. Is it Pharaoh or is it God? Right? So on one hand, you have back in the beginning of chapter 7, a text where it clearly says, I will, speaking of God, will harden Pharaoh's heart. And then here, number two, you have a text where it's ambiguous. Who's doing the hardening? But then... Now to make it even more confusing, as the story continues, for example, in Exodus 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 15, you'll read this, a line like this. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Right? So now we have three options here. Explicit text where God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Text where it's ambiguous, number two. And then number three, a text where it says that Pharaoh explicitly hardens his heart. Are we confused yet? And so this has been one of those moments or those spaces in the Bible that smart people disagree about, kind of what's exactly happening here. But this is going to be our mission, shoes we choose to accept it this morning, to kind of dive in and tackle what exactly is going on through the course of this narrative with regard to Pharaoh's hard heart. Now, in order to do that, let's ask a couple questions here. The first question I just want to ask is, who is hardening Pharaoh's heart? Is it God or is it Pharaoh? 
Yes. Right? Yes. And so there's a little bit of both going on here. And we'll explain what that, how that plays out as we go along. But I think an even more important question to ask is not who is hardening Pharaoh's heart, but how is Pharaoh's heart being hardened? The how question. How is Pharaoh's heart becoming harder and harder and harder? Now, as we kind of explore through the rest of our time through the scriptures this morning, we're going to keep coming back to this question. How is Pharaoh's heart being hardened? And one of the key ways to kind of answer this question, I think, is to actually look at the narrative flow of the sequence of the ten plagues. Because some really interesting things begin to pop up as we look at the ten plagues, one through ten, in relationship to this kind of problem or puzzle, if you will, regarding Pharaoh's heart. Here's the thing to start off with that I think we all kind of should, need, should wrap our heads around to begin with. Through the first half or so of the ten plagues, the texts are either ambiguous or clear that it's Pharaoh being the one hardening his own heart. It's not until the, the very end, the last three plagues in particular, where the text is explicit that God is the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. So there's a flow that's happening here. In the beginning, it's ambiguous, or it's Pharaoh himself hardening his heart, and then it's not till the very end, seven, eight, nine, or eight, nine, and ten, the last three plagues, that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so keep that in the back of your head. Let's dive into a few of these plagues here. The first plague, the, the plague of blood, right? So Moses comes to Pharaoh, let my people go. You've seen the movie, right? They have the con confrontation. Pharaoh says no. And the first thing that happens is, okay, Moses, he, he lifts up his staff, he sticks it into the Nile, and the Nile River turns to blood. But as we kind of go through that narrative, if you were to read that narrative of the, of the water turning into blood, the first instance you read about Pharaoh's heart in this instance is that ambiguous line, Pharaoh's heart was hard, verse 22. We're not quite sure at this point who is doing the hardening. Is it God or is it Pharaoh? But then with the second plague, the plague of frogs, this is the first explicit time where the text is clear that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So I want to actually take a little bit more time with the second plague, the plague of frogs. Again, Moses, it's kind of a very similar narrative. Moses will come to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And so then the second plague, in this case, the frogs becomes unleashed over the land of Egypt. This is the beginning of chapter 8. Now, what's interesting here is that as the, the plague of, of frogs is unleashed over the whole land, there's frogs everywhere, the text says. Frogs in the oven, frogs in the microwave, frogs in the bed. Like, just frogs all over the place. But then... Kind of Pharaoh and his crew, they can kind of do the same thing, the text says in chapter 8. And so they unleash, their way of combating is to then unleash more frogs in the land. And I kind of, as a side note, imagine if I'm living in Egypt, and I'm like trying to deal with like my, my food or my baking or whatever, my cleaning, if the only solution that Pharaoh and his crew can provide is more frogs, I'm kind of like, come on, we don't need more frogs in this place. But that's all Pharaoh and his crew can do. To combat evil is unleash more chaos in evil. And so what you have here is this overly multiplication of frogs throughout the land. But then what's interesting is that Pharaoh comes to Moses in chapter 8 and says, you know what, Moses? Okay, it's too much. There's too many frogs in this place. And the text reads this in verse 8. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord and please take the frogs away from me and my people and I, pay attention to this, I will let your people go and offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now what's happening here? 
Pharaoh's trying to bargain a little bit. He's saying, okay, Moses, you pray to your God, you get rid of the frogs, because all we can do is just add more frogs to the problem. You pray to your God, you get rid of the frogs, and I promise I will let your people go. Now Moses kind of does a double take here if you read the text, and he's like, you sure about that? You sure? I'm going to pray. Tomorrow I'm going to come back. The frogs are going to be gone. You sure you're going to let us go? And Pharaoh's like, yes, deal. The frogs will be gone, and you will get to go. But then, this is what happens. Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, right, the frogs have now dissipated. They're gone. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, here's the first explicit time, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron. What's going on here? Think about this. Pharaoh thinks he can use and abuse God's mercy. Pharaoh thinks he can enlist the mercy of God for his own advantage and not change himself. He's at this moment, this point where he he goes, he prays that prayer, God, I promise if you do this, I will change and do this. God, if, if you do X, I will do Y. But then God does his part and Pharaoh doesn't do his. He's taking advantage of the mercy of God. And as a result, the text says, his heart became hard, but really, he hardened his own heart. And this, I think, there's a lot to, be, to think about here. This concept of kind of taking advantage of God's mercy. Taking advantage of God's grace. Receiving God's mercy. Receiving the, the reprieve. Rece- receiving the relief of God, if you will. And then not following through in changing ourselves. It's a very dangerous place to be in. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about this. He had this phrase. He's a pastor in Germany in the 30s and 40s. This phrase called cheap grace. Where we take God's grace, but don't actually change ourselves. He defined cheap grace as this, Bonhoeffer. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In other words, it's taking the mercy and grace of God, but with no no real transformation or change along the way. So again, think about this. Remember our question. How is Pharaoh's heart being hardened? And up to this point, we can say, part of the way Pharaoh's heart is being hardened is that he is using and abusing and enlisting God's mercy and grace for himself without actually changing himself. But let's kind of keep going here, right? That's the second plague. If plague number two is the, the frogs. Number three is the plague of gnats. And the plague of gnats, it's, it's a, another one of those instances where when you read about Pharaoh's heart and the narrative there, it's ambiguous as to, again, who is hardening whose heart. Is God hardening it or is Pharaoh's hardening it? It's ambiguous with the, with the gnats. But then plague number four is the flies, right? So number four, again, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And the response, a bunch of flies get unleashed all over the land of Egypt. And this is toward the end of chapter 8. And let me read a little bit of this, of this to you. This is chapter 8, starting in verse 29. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. All right? So this is the, kind of the same thing that's happening. Pharaoh, he he has begged Moses, Moses, get rid of these flies. And Moses responds, okay, I will pray to God and see if these flies will disappear and go away. 
right? That's verse 29. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Right? So again, there's, that war- there's this warning again. Pharaoh, you were given a chance before. Don't take advantage of my mercy and grace again. Don't cheat again like you did with the frogs. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did, as Moses asked, and removed the swarm of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from the people. Not one remained. Look at the end of verse 32, chapter 8. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Do you see a pattern developing here? The plague happens. Pharaoh comes back and says, you know what? Okay, I promise to let you go this time. Just get rid of it. I'm asking for grace. I'm asking for a reprieve. I'm asking for a little bit of wiggle room here. Moses prays. God does his part. Pharaoh comes back and says, never mind. I'm just going to do what I was doing before. I'm not going to change. Again, the question, how is Pharaoh's heart being hardened? It seems like one of the main answers to that question is, again, Pharaoh using and taking advantage of the mercy and the grace of God. But as the, as the plagues continue, number five, the one right smack in the middle, is another instance where, again, the text is still ambiguous. Chapter 9, verse 7, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart after, or, or the, 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 sorry, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. It's ambiguous with the livestock. All the livestock die. Pharaoh's response, though, is his heart is continually being hardened. Again, not super clear with this plague, who is doing the hardening. But then plague number six. This is a key transition point in the narrative. This is the first time in the sequence of the ten plagues where God is explicitly the one to harden Pharaoh's heart. The first five, it was either Pharaoh himself or ambiguous. Number six, this is the first time where it's abundantly clear that God is the one hardening Pharaoh's heart. And it seems like, at a certain point, if Pharaoh is refusing to say, God, your will be done, Pharaoh then says, or God says then back to Pharaoh, okay, Pharaoh, your will be done. It's almost like what Paul talks about in Romans 1, being handed over to our choices. There's something like this going on, I think, here in the passage. But then we come to plague number seven. Plague number seven is a bunch of hail. I don't know if you could ever imagine or been in a, a really bad hail storm. That's, that's never a fun thing. It's often quite dangerous. I remember just, was that, was that last winter? We had that really massive storm and we were living in our old house with these single pane windows. And the hail and the wind was beating against our windows. We didn't sleep all night. Because I was, I was dead sure that these single pane windows from like 100 years ago were going to crack. And we were going to be like living in the hailstorm, if you will. But anyway, side note. Plague number seven is this plague of hail. Now, this is a really key, key moment in the narrative. This is chapter 9 and verse 34 and following. As, as Pharaoh sees all of this hail come, there's this really interesting line in verse 34 where the text says this. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. Okay, so it's explicitly clear. Pharaoh is the one hardening his heart here. Verse 34. He and his servants. Verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Now, it's really key. That interplay and that interchange in chapter 9, verse 34 and 35 is really key, I think, to interpreting the rest of the ten plagues. In verse 34, you have an explicit reference to Pharaoh hardening 
his own heart. Pharaoh is the one doing this. Pharaoh is stubbornly refusing to say yes to God and is saying no to God. He's habituating himself, getting in the habit, if you will, of saying no to God again and again. That's verse 34. Verse 35 says, so Pharaoh's heart was hardened or became hard. Now that, that, that line in verse 35 is a copy and paste from all those other ambiguous times that we looked at previously in the first half of the 10 plagues where it was not totally clear who was doing the hardening. And so a lot of really smart people look at this interplay here at the end of chapter 9 and use it to then say, okay, this is how to reinterpret some of those other ambiguous moments in the story. Because Pharaoh hardened his own heart, verse 34, then verse 35, it kind of gives the, 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 the explanatory power, if you will. So Pharaoh's heart was hard. And so it seems to me that all those other ambiguous times up until this point were actually a result of Pharaoh's stubborn, repeated refusal to say yes to God. That Pharaoh, because he's, again, taking advantage of God's mercy, taking advantage of God's grace, taking advantage of all these chances and saying no to God, is going down this self-destructive path of becoming a harder, more cynical, bitter, stubborn person. That's plague number seven. But here's the thing. As you go from plague eight, nine, and ten, it's almost like the level gets ramped up a bit. From here on out, like I mentioned earlier, God is the one who explicitly is said to harden Pharaoh's heart. And it seems like there's this point where Pharaoh has kind of gone down this path of his own choosing. That Pharaoh has again refused to say, your will be done, God. That now Pharaoh, or God says to Pharaoh, okay, Pharaoh, your will be done. If this is the path that you want, if this is the way that you want to go, this stubborn refusal to say yes to me and no to your ways, then okay, we can go down that path. We can go down that path. This is why Professor Gary Brashears kind of sums up this narrative like this. He says, Pharaoh decided his course of action and is therefore respons- is the responsible cause for his own sin. Only after Pharaoh repeatedly refused to obey did he reach the limit of God's patient mercy. Then God confirmed the hardness of Pharaoh's heart by hardening it himself. You see kind of the logic there? How are we doing? This is a lot, right? It's a lot of text. It's a lot of like, okay, kind of uncomfortable a little bit. Like, why is God even hardening someone's heart in the first place? I feel that, right? I feel that tension. I feel the little bit of uncomfortableness with this passage. But again, think about our question. How is Pharaoh's heart being hardened? Think about it with the narrative flow, right? That Pharaoh has chosen this himself in the beginning. That he's going down this path of taking advantage of God's mercy over and over and over again. God's not sitting up there in heaven like a robot going, okay, zap, boom. I'm going to make your hard heart just arbitrarily. That's not what's happening here. God, to a certain degree, is honoring Pharaoh's choice to go down this rebellious path on his own. That Pharaoh is the instigator of saying no to God again and again and again. Habituating himself to become the kind of person that, at this point, cannot say yes to God. He has that 
in the language of frozen, that frozen heart. But as we kind of think about this, as we think about maybe to kind of clarify this a little bit, how is Pharaoh's heart being hardened? Maybe just put it really simply like this, two things. Number one, how is his heart being hardened? Number one, he is taking advantage of God's mercy. And the similar thing I can, be, can be said for us at times. How can our hearts become hard when we take advantage of God's mercy and grace? Paul says to the church in Rome that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness and mercy is not something to be taken advantage of as if God doesn't care what we're doing. That we can just kind of go our own way. God's kindness and mercy and grace is God's way of calling us back to himself. And Pharaoh fails to realize this. Number two, how is, God's, how is Pharaoh's heart being hardened? Number two, Pharaoh, at least through the first half of this narrative, repeatedly is choosing to say no to God. We might say in maybe some more modern vernacular, he has created habits in his own life of saying no to God again and again and again. He's gotten in the habit of saying no to God. How many of you are familiar with that saying, old habits die hard? Right? I think there's something similar going on here with the Pharaoh narrative, with the ten plagues. Now think about just our own sort of modern context. The habits we do, the habits we do over and over and over again, have an effect on us. They're not just like isolated decisions. The accumulation of our habits have a profound shaping and impact on our own everyday lives. Maybe to kind of tease this out a little bit, maybe a more neutral-ish example, think about your phone. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand on this one. <laughs> How many of you have the habit, first thing in the morning, of checking your phone? Or checking your phone probably more often than you would like to. Now, 20 years ago, that was not a problem for us. The phone didn't even exist the way it does today. But think about it. That choice over and over and over again of constantly checking our phone has done something where it's almost impossible for, for some of us to not check our phone all the time. And so that habit has done something. That habit has shaped us as human beings to a certain degree. And there's a level of, we, we talk about this as a culture of, of wanting to be this individualistic, sort of free culture of getting to just make my own choices and do what I want to do. But the reality is, is that more often than we like to admit, our habits and choices have a restraining effect on us. They have a shaping effect on us. Am I really free from my phone? Probably not, right? And in a similar way, our response to God has a shaping power over time. The more we say yes to God, the more we submit to God, the more we turn back to him, there's a level of our hearts becoming softer and softer and softer as we know the goodness and the character of God. But the opposite is also true. The more that we might, ah, oh, that's not really a big deal. I'll just maybe ignore God in this area. Oh, that, I don't really need to pay attention to what God might be saying in this part of my life. That too has a shaping effect. It has a, may I dare say, a constraining effect where we become less the human beings that God would want us to be. People that are shaped by God's love and compassion. People that are melted by his grace. 
People that are, that are so overwhelmed by the love and kindness of God that when God speaks, when God calls, when God tells us something, that we not just begrudgingly, but we joyfully say yes. That's why I think Jesus was so keen on this when he said in Luke 16, be faithful in the little things. Oftentimes we think, oh, that's just a little thing. That's, that's not, a, that's not a, a big deal. But Jesus had a lot to say about the heart and faithfulness. Now sometimes we're just waiting for that, that big moment to say yes to God. Okay, God, when it really matters, then I will say yes to you. When it really matters, when everything's on the line, when people are watching or other people's lives are affected, but when it's just me and you, God, it's not that big a deal. We'll just put it to the side a little bit. But, but Jesus, God himself, out of his love, says, no, 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 hold on. It's in those little moments character is formed. It's in those little moments the trajectory of our lives is developed, that we are an accumulation to a certain degree of those little choices of saying yes or no to God. This is why C.S. Lewis in his, in his brilliant book, The Great Divorce, talks about this, that people are often on either one of two trajectories, moving closer and closer to the person of God or moving farther and farther away from God, often shaped by the choices that we often make. And there's something to this here. Oftentimes here at Wellspring, we talk about something called centered set. Where this idea where Jesus and his kingdom is at the center. And everything is to be focused and centered around him. And the, the, the primary question isn't so much, are you in or are you out? Well, well, that is an important question. The more important question we think is, are you moving closer to the person of Jesus? Whether you've been following Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years, or 20 or 30 minutes, the question is, are you moving closer to the person of Jesus? And one of the ways that we move closer to the person of Jesus is by joyfully saying yes to the things of him. We might not have all the answers. We might not have it all figured out as far as, you know, our choices and our ethics and our morals and the questions of theology and life. But the heart posture, the desire, the, 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 the most important thing is that, God, I want to please you. I, I want to live for you. Help me to do that. That's why James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, we might not have all the answers or the wisdom, but God, James says through, in the scriptures, God says through James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously, who, who does, loves to pour out his wisdom on his kids. And friends, I think there's something really important here. That Pharaoh never takes those small opportunities to say yes to God. And I know this is heavy. I, I feel the tension and in, in the, in, in the weight of a text like this. But hear my heart in this. That this is, not, it, see, this, let me phrase it like this. The opposite of, of, of love, of God's love, is not like hate or judgment. The opposite of God's love would be indifference. Just not caring at all. Just, oh, think about it as, as parents with kids. When my kids are, are doing something that I know is not good for them, if I were to just say, oh, it doesn't matter, just, just do what you want, whatever. You know, 20 years from now, you know, you'll turn out fine, I guess. Like, that would be awful parenting. But to step in and to intervene is, is, is because I love them. And when God is speaking, when God is maybe confronting the areas of our lives where our hearts might be hardened towards him, it is out of his love that he's doing it. 
It is out of God's love and compassion and mercy that he even gives Pharaoh 10 chances to say yes. 10 chances while having state-sponsored genocide. Put that in our modern context. That would be absurd if we gave 10 chances to any form of government that was doing state-sponsored genocide. This is a, an enormous revelation of God's grace and compassion. And as we kind of even drill down a little bit deeper into this, some of us, as I mentioned that, the 10 plagues, the 10 chances, you might not even think of them as 10 chances. You might think of that like, that is God being the angry Old Testament God, right? This is God, Old Testament, angry, plagues, lightning, thunder. This is not like the New Testament, Jesus meek and mild here. And I would just kind of submit to you, maybe that's you and you're kind of having that as like a side thought here, is that I think that's, if I could say it like this, maybe our kind of Western problem with our view of God, and especially as sort of West Coast Californians, we love God's love and compassion and grace and mercy, but we're kind of like, ugh, a God of judgment, a God who would confront. Well, I don't know about that. Unless God's confronting those people, right? Then we're all for it. And you know who those people are, right? We all have those people. But here's the thing. God's love and God's judgment, God's comfort and God's confrontation, they go together. It is because God loves his people. It's because God loves this world that he will often confront us, you and me. And that while it's easy to, yes, point the finger out there, may we just kind of be a little self-reflective here. Maybe there are areas in our lives where God might want to say, you know what? It's a little bit off kilter there. It's not fully in line with what I have for you. And it's because God's compassion and mercy and love that he does this. And so maybe to kind of wind this down and land the plane a little bit. A few minutes here on this. Another question to think about. What if we are Pharaoh? What if we are Pharaoh? Sometimes we read the Exodus story and we read these Old Testament stories. Like, oh yeah, I'm David. I'm going to go slay some giants, right? Or I'm Abraham. I'm going to, you know, full charge ahead, have to have faith, or I'm, I'm Israel, I'm, I'm the one who needs rescue. And while the, yes, that's true, 100%. We all need rescue. We all need deliverance. But what if we are at times Pharaoh in this story? Here's the thing. As Moses continues, as Israel's story continues, as the Hebrew Bible continues... Moses on a, on a number of occasions, the prophets on a number of occasions, the Psalms on a number of occasions will call out Israel as having a hard heart. And you're an ancient Israelite. You're reading through that. You have the Exodus story as, you know, the creation story and the Exodus story as your two foundation stories that you keep coming back to year after year at Passover. And you read about these other stories where God, through his prophets, calls you out as having a hard heart, you go, hold on a second. That's a little bit of a dick. They're just calling, they just called us Pharaoh. What else is the language of hard heart associated with other than Pharaoh? And so you'll have numerous instances as we continue on through the Old Testament of God's people being described as having hard hearts. 
And so the ones that have been rescued from the hard-hearted oppressor have become themselves to a certain degree. In a similar way, those that have hard hearts, them, them own selves. But the story does not stop there. It does not end on a note of despair. The prophets, while they would call Israel out for having a hard heart, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, in particular, the one I'm thinking about, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel prophesies and foretells the day when, when God would do this new work. When God would do this new work where Ezekiel says, I will give you, God says through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and I'll put with, that I'll put within you. I will remove your heart of stone, that hard heart. I will take out that hard heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh, a heart that is soft, a heart that is moldable, a heart that wants to say yes to the things of God. And Ezekiel was looking forward to this day that Jesus himself comes to fulfill. That, well, yes, Jesus, he heals, he preaches, he teaches. Ultimately, what Jesus is after is not just our moral, ethical behavior. He's not just after healing a few people here and there. He is for the complete transformation of the human person from the inside out, from the heart. And that this is what God has come to do in the person of Jesus. To not leave us in this state on our own. Do not be people who are left in a, in a place of despair going, I can't do this. I, I have these, I recognize that there are areas in my life where my life, my heart is hard. But Jesus, through the gift of the Spirit, says, no, no, I've come to give you a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. Meaning a heart that is, again, soft and tender. A heart that that doesn't just obey God because it's the right thing to do, but obeys God because, as 1 John says, his commandments are not burdensome. They're actually life-giving. And that I actually experience true freedom when my heart is in line with the things of God, when I actually say yes to God, not from a place of obligation, but from a place of being deeply touched and transformed by the love and compassion and mercy of God. Where I become the person, where we become the people, the community, that say yes to God out of the, in an overflow and response to receiving the love and the kindness of God in our own lives. And so, friends, I have just one question, one practice, if you will, for us as we think about this for the week ahead. Where might be a way or two to be kind of in this moment, at this place of saying, okay, God, how might I, I live this out, lean into this reality? That, God, you have given us, as your followers, not just a new set of moral, ethical standards or teachings, but you've, you've sought to transform us from the inside out. How might we be a people that live into that? Well, one thing that kind of kept coming to mind was really simply this prayer from the book of Psalms. Psalm 139 has this famous line, Search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wayward or wicked way within me. It's this beautiful prayer, not of shame or condemnation, but a beautiful prayer to be in the presence of God, to have moments of honesty, moments of vulnerability with our Heavenly Father. Because the truth of the matter is, kind of like, you know, this, this past week we had an awesome week. We had, you know, people over, young adults and friends and stuff. And kind of when you're getting ready for people to come over, there's kind of like the, the last, like, 30 minutes of trying to clean up really fast, Right? And so you have like that, we always have the, the, there's the area and the secret spot in our house where it's like, okay, boom, everything's going in there, right? And so the kids know it's like a fire drill at this point, right? We have it down like clockwork. 
But oftentimes, in our own lives, we have those moments in those areas where we just kind of shove it off into that spare room, if you will. And kind of just, ah, it's, it's not that big a deal. We'll get to it later, kind of a thing. And I just would maybe submit to you and to us as a community that as we think about and pray this prayer from Psalm 139, where might God be wanting to address that quote-unquote spare room, if you will? Where he might just be kind of pushing it off to the side and just hoping it maybe goes away or, or, or whatever the case might be. And friends, that there, it, it, this is not to create shame or guilt or a sense of condemnation. The New Testament talks about in these moments where we turn back to God and we repent, Acts chapter 3, Peter says, when we repent, that there is times of refreshing from the presence of God. When we turn back to him, Peter says, Acts chapter 3, verse 21, turn back to God that you might experience times of refreshing from his presence. I don't know about you, but I need that. That there's been moments, seasons, days, weeks, even months this past year where it has been kind of really hard to not just come to grips with the reality of everything that's happening out there, but the reality of like, what God has been showing me in my own heart. That oftentimes, like, the, the experiences and the circumstances of what's happening in the world, God might use to reveal things in my own life. Areas where I can grow and improve and become more like him. And it's in those moments where, you, where we turn back to God and say, God, search my heart. See if there be any wicked way within me that we begin to experience the refreshing presence of God in our lives. It's those moments where just recently being confronted with the fact that I don't always speak to my kids in a way that honors them. And that for too long, I've perhaps kind of ignored that. Like, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm their dad. I, I, I should be able to tell them what to do and they should just listen to me. Well, in a certain level, sure, that's true. But just being confronted by that, just in a sense of, no, no, your heart's not in the right spot there. That your impatience is actually leaking out there. And perhaps God is saying to me, and maybe this helps you, I don't know, to figure out areas in your life where God is saying, no, no, come back, turn back, and experience refreshment and healing in my presence. As we ask that question, what might that be for you? Search our hearts, God. And that we might experience moments in times and seasons of refreshing. I want to invite the worship team to, to come back up. And as we, again, just sit in this place, in this moment of, of, yes, this is a hard text. It's a hard story to wrestle with. There's, I'm sure, other questions that, that we might have with it. But I would just encourage you as we spend a few moments reflecting and singing and worshiping Jesus to know that Jesus is for you in this moment. That even as God brings to, to mind areas in our lives or that might not be aligned with him, I think of what the author of the Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If God is speaking 
today if you hear his voice, do not ignore that. But hear that as the loving call of our heavenly father, inviting you back into his presence to experience his presence in moments of refreshment. So Jesus, we do ask that you would do that work in each of us. That God, you would help us to be a people that not just honor you with the words that we say, but we would honor you with our hearts. That our posture from the inside out would be wholly yours, fully submitted to you, God, because what you have for us is good. What you have for us is for our flourishing and for our well-being. So God, we, we ask that you would instill that in us in a deeper way this morning. Help us to say yes to you. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your name.